Mark Gagan and welcome to this special episode of The Voice of Insurance, produced in association with Corvus Insurance. Corvus is a young insurance business that is moving so fast that those of us looking in from the outside could be forgiven for seeing something of a blur. For instance, should we look at this business as a specialist cyber underwriter, or should we see a cyber technology provider, or indeed a much broader data-driven insurtech company that is class agnostic? The answer is probably a blend of all three. That's why it's so valuable to speak to someone of the calibre of Madhu Tadikonda, Corvus's president. As a tech entrepreneur who then rose rapidly to become AIG's global chief underwriting officer, Madhu has had a stellar insurance career of his own before joining up with Corvus last year. In this really lively podcast, I get Madhu to explain all of the moving parts within Corvus and distill the common themes. In doing so, we get a front-row view of the challenges and opportunities facing the cyber market, run through the rationale behind Corvus's recent acquisition of CyberMGA Tarion Underwriting, and look into what other classes are catching this progressive business's eye. I'd say that what really makes Corvus tick is a real affinity for the fastest-growing insurance classes where client need, demand and opportunity are greatest, coupled with the realisation that the most important risks of the future are becoming more dynamic and that the most successful underwriters of tomorrow are going to have to be much faster learners than their predecessors and be much more engaged and helpful to their customers. Almost paradoxically, Corvus looks very much like an ultra-traditional insurance business, except that its way of going about things is anything but. It's fascinating stuff. Enjoy the podcast. Madhu, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you. Great to be here. I've glanced at your resume, Madhu. It's a sparkling one. Why don't you just give it a quick run through and then tell us the story of how you came to work at Corvus? Will do. That's generous for you to say sparkling. I think it's non-linear at best. And I know uh, people who look at my LinkedIn profile, including my family, are sometimes bewildered by the progression. But I actually started out my career in consulting and venture capital, where my focus was really around all of the companies that were starting to use data and technology to make better, different decisions. And that started with credit card companies, then consumer finance companies, then supply chain companies, then retail price optimization companies. And that trend of using analytics to drive decision-making was sort of the animating thrust of my career. And then it wasn't until about 10 years ago that I ended up learning and getting into the insurance industry. And my first stop in some ways was kind of like starting with the New York Yankees as baseball team. My first experience at insurance was with AIG. And at that time, the leadership wanted to build and think about data and analytics in a new way. And I joined in a somewhat experimental role as a head of uh, data science in the commercial insurance area. And really, the promise at that point was AIG had vast amounts of data, the market share leader for years and years and years, and had the scale that even a small improvement in decision making would yield huge value. So AIG pays $100 million in claims a day. If you make that a little bit better, the impact sort of materializes immediately. But the experimental part came through in that that kind of focused data analytics effort really hadn't been something that AIG had done before. And when I ended up joining, it was sort of, there's this great potential of all this information and data available, but some of it was in paper files and warehouses and had never been used before. So that first couple of years of really thinking about, well, what's really the most powerful interventions? How do we use data and information in ways that we haven't done before? was really a voyage of discovery for me. And then after two years, I had the opportunity to become the chief underwriting officer, 
globally for the commercial insurance business and then eventually for the property and casualty business, which was, I think, a great kind of bet that the company took on me as somebody who had not been a lifelong underwriter. But it was sort of having to eat your own cooking, which had done all this kind of data and analytics work, but now figuring out how to blend that with the underwriters and get them to actually use it and think about mixing that with their judgment was actually even more fun for me and a great position and a great spot to learn and see insurance in every country from the smallest policies to the kind of most complex ones as AIG does. I ended up leaving AIG about four years ago. Mostly, I think it was probably my old kind of venture capital habits of being interested in something entrepreneurial and doing something on the sort of earlier stage end of things. And started one company, was on the founding team of a company called Archipelago Analytics. And that was with a guy named Hemant Shah, who is the founder of RMS. And that was a data analytics company focused on commercial property. Believe it or not, all these things tie together in Corvus, which even I wasn't anticipating. But thinking about property and how data is used there, I think has a lot of analogs for what we're doing at Corvus. And then the second company that I co-founded was called Bolt Tech, which was an insurance exchange platform and matching prospects and customers with balance sheets in a very light touch, digitally smooth way. And so at that point, I had sort of combination on the biggest of the old incumbents on the AIG side, and then two different insurtechs and one that was in the US and one that was started in Singapore. And then last year, so 2020, I'd met Phil Edmondson, the CEO of Corvus, a few years ago, and then caught up with him again and was learning more about what was happening in cyber insurance and got pretty excited that this was an opportunity for an insurtech to really go after the customer and define the product in a new way. And one of the things that was sort of chastened from the AIG experience was it's actually pretty hard to build an insurtech to go against an incumbent company. Customers are usually pretty happy with their solutions and providers and getting the relevance to do something a different way can be tough. And I saw enough sort of characteristics of cyber that made me think, wait a minute, this is a brand new way of doing insurance that an insurtech probably has a shot to do something different and that it was the foundation for what I thought sort of insurance might be in the future. So ended up joining about five months ago, as with most sort of earlier stage companies, it's been a jam-packed, action-packed five months, but very excited about Corvus and what the future of insurance and that cyber realm can be. Well, thanks, Madhu. Long-winded story. No, it isn't. <laughs> but, I didn't want uh, to interrupt you because it is quite meteoric. And I think everyone can recognize that um, AIG being that great cauldron, that sort of great university of insurance and one of those great places where so many top people in the industry have cut their teeth and learned a lot, but it's coming all together, which is why I thought that leads rather neatly into Corvus. So everything's coming together. And obviously having founded a business with Hemant Shah, who's also, let's say, the founder of what we know as InsureTech with RMS, you know, the original InsureTech right. in our industry. That was the sparkly bit, I thought. I thought it was quite sparkly. Anyway, but with Corvus, everything's coming together. Give us a bit of a run through of Corvus for any of the listeners who don't know it. Where's it come from and where's it heading? So Corvus was founded about five years ago in 2017. And at that point, the mission, and Phil Edmondson was the founder, sort of a career lifelong broker in the commercial insurance space. And the mission at that point really was, where can you use data and analytics and technology to make better decisions in commercial insurance for policyholders, for brokers, for carriers, and broadly with the mission of making the world a safer and more secure place. So very ambitious. And what I think almost true to the original mission of insurance, which is it's a profit-making business, but one where the effects are driving the right kinds of behaviors and, and safety and security in the world. And that was kind of the broad ambition. And I think over the years, that expression was sort of most focused on cyber insurance. 
And if you think about where data and analytics are particularly relevant for new ways of doing things and thinking about new risks. And then I think crucially, a thing about Corvus, which is also part of the RMS and also what I think is kind of the winning formula, is how you think about data analytics and technology, but combine that with traditional insurance knowledge, how underwriters operate, how the ecosystem works, why policyholders look at things a certain way, how brokers operate and how to keep them as sort of trusted advisors. And I was happy to see in kind of the few years since founding when I reconnected with Phil, that that kind of DNA helped which is focusing on new ways of underwriting and engaging with policyholders, but being very cognizant of this is a very specific, highly regulated product. It's bought in a certain way. Brokers and intermediaries are extremely important and are trusted advisors and policyholders think about risk in a certain way. So right now, the lion's share of what we do is cyber insurance. Now, that's partially driven by the market where there's been a lot of chaos in that market and new customers coming in or customers expanding what they've got and some of the incumbents pulling back that's created an opportunity. But I think that broader view of how you bring kind of analytics and think about it in the traditional insurance ecosystem and work with underwriters and brokers and policyholders in a way they're used to working with things is the sort of unique combination and secret to what we're doing at Corvus. And I think people would know you as a cyber underwriter, but you're also a cyber technology company and you're an insurtech in perhaps a purer sense because you're not just in cyber as a class. How would you like to be viewed as that, the cyber underwriter, cyber technology company, or an insurtech, or perhaps a combination of all of those? Yeah, I'd like to be all of those. And then whichever category is valued most highly, we can say we're that one. <laughs> but um, I, I do think it is the combination of those things. You think about cyber insurance, the data that we use to make underwriting decisions or pricing decisions is all of the classic firm information and macro industry information, but then very deep information about how a company looks from its network perimeter, how it would look from an external scan from a hacker or cyber attacker, combined with what their internal IT posture looks like and questions around policies. Lots of data attributes that were never really in the underwriting process before that we're bringing in and thinking about and testing and experimenting with. So that's brand new. So the same decision is issuing a policy with a price or making an underwriting decision. But what's powering that is a completely different set of data attributes and ways of looking at the world. So that, I think, is new and unique and puts it to the tech and analytics and sure tech side. The second is once a policy is underwritten, we're in constant engagement with the policyholder, which you kind of have to be. We can make the smartest underwriting decision we like, but in a 12-month cycle, that's not the pace at which attackers are coming up with new ideas. So we need to observe when new threats are occurring and quickly go back to the right policyholders who might be exposed and talking about interventions or things they can do to protect themselves. And those two brand new sets of data and a very continuous form of policyholder engagement are what I think are kind of unique for cyber and for Corvus. And getting to your follow-on question is, that's actually what I think more of insurance is going to look like in the future. And so even traditional products like property will have a lot more sensor data, will have a lot more continuous information about threats and responses and ways to engage. And so it's almost, we go into traditional products, but cyber and cyber-like characteristics end up eating all of the rest of the commercial insurance products and really as a way that modern insurance should work. So to summarize that, you're agnostic, but you've naturally gravitated to cyber because it's that dynamic data. Well, let's say, okay, fire is going to get more dynamic, but it's not there yet. Whereas That's you right. know, fire can still rely on fire tables going back to the 19th century and actually haven't changed that much, you know, wooden buildings, et cetera. 
But because the nature of the loss in cyber is changing all the time and the threat is so dynamic, is that where you feel you can add the value because you've got data points coming in every millisecond? That's exactly right. I think the other part is we think broadly of cyber or even what Corvus is doing in cyber is helping companies protect their digital business operations and their digital assets. And those two categories are growing and growing as a fraction of what's important to businesses. You know, sometimes I think most of the traditional commercial insurance industry is designed around protecting physical assets and tangible assets. And those are still important, but thinking about traditional operations. But if you think about what a company cares about a lot today, it's partially their buildings and their factories, but a lot around their intellectual property, their CAD CAM engineering drawings, their brand, their reputation, things that the traditional insurance industry has not necessarily addressed or focused on as much but which are highly exposed in the digital environment. And same with business operations, even with work from home and the way that companies operate virtually, there's a lot more emphasis on making sure uptime exists and IT assets are protected versus what we normally think of operations and factory operations and hard assets like buildings. And of course, so I think more and more we'll start looking like what we think of as cyber insurance down the road. And of course, those elements of the economy are, are the much faster growing. And of course, so they're going to dominate in the future. That's right. One of the other classes that you're also known for is cargo. And obviously, that's traditional, about as traditional as insurance can be. But of course, it's incredibly dynamic because it's moving around. And you've got some of that technology, the Internet of Things technology attached to those containers going around the world. Again, is that why that has appealed to Corvus? It has. And we really keep an ear to the ground if we take this general view of new forms of data and continuous policyholder engagement. And which classes are more susceptible to that or which slices of different risks look more like that where we can step in? And cargo, absolutely. The shipping world and containers have been instrumented around shock and temperature and location in ways that were inconceivable 20 years ago. I think there's a crucial point, which is very rarely will somebody or company go through the effort of instrumenting its business just to save on its insurance. So usually we have to piggyback and see, oh, for other reasons, data and technology have been put into place. Can we use that as part of the insurance process? So cargo, for a lot of the research I talked about, fits that. I think what drives and when things kind of spike into really hyper growth is when you couple that with a capacity crunch of some form. And that's, I think, what we're seeing in cyber, which is the data and analytics are critical. The policyholder engagement is critical. But because of the losses that have come through and new threats, the traditional players that don't have those things have pulled back. And that's really created an opportunity for new firms to come in. And coming back to AIG, you know, cyber had been around for 15 years and AIG had been a real pioneer in that. My observation when I had been at AIG was that it was always a very profitable line, usually sold as a side order. So, oh, you're buying this product and these are professional lines. Why not throw in some cyber alongside? but actually was in some ways the least data-driven and least technologically linked product. And that, I think, is what has changed Cyber 2.0 and the new way the product are operating and underwritten. Wow. This is very interesting. We're talking very specifically about cyber, it seems to be it's a really dislocated and bifurcated market. And you're right, you've already alluded to that being it's almost a moment where the wheat and the chaff are being separated in terms of those that have really invested and doubled down on the product itself, on really understanding risk and being a dynamic responder to a very dynamic risk. Of course, and the risk has been dynamic because now it's all about ransomware. It's, it's off the charts. Whereas, of course, five years ago, it would have been customer credit card details being stolen from US retailers was the big story. 
And before that would have been data breach, notifications, liability cover, or the increased cost of notifying customers of data breaches, et cetera. So it's been incredibly dynamic already, even in its relatively short lifetime. So is it all about ransomware at the moment? It does seem to be. And it sounds like you're fairly confident that you're in that hardcore camp of the players that are going to trade through this and that you've got a handle on ransomware. You're close to customers. You've invested in the smarts and the engineering to really get a grip on this. That's right. And in some ways, the amount of ransomware that's been collected by the bad actors means that that's become, in some ways, a professionalized industry. And there's specialists, ones who find vulnerabilities, then sell those for others to create the right attacks, and then others to then basically attack companies in different areas and go after CFOs and make ransom demands. And the fact that that has stratified means that you actually can see traces of these things in the dark web and other places of these threats emerging as bad actors are reaching out to each other. And so that signal lets us spot things and then go back to vulnerable policyholders. And that's something I think of as a great you know, combining the new world with the old world at Corvus, but you're having the trust of our of intermediaries and brokers so that we are in constant engagement with policyholders, have their contact information, can go back to them. You know, historically, intermediaries were pretty set on keeping carriers and risk takers away from policyholders and managing that interaction. You know, gaining the trust of intermediaries so that we can preserve that link has been a huge component of it. I think ransomware, it's changing. I think firms have more data recovery and fail safes so that they're less vulnerable to attacks. And those are some of the things we look at in underwrite or encourage through pricing and recommendations through the policy period. I think policyholders are more thoughtful when a ransomware demand comes in of not instantly paying the full demand, but thinking about their real exposure and vulnerability. And then I think there's more enforcement actions going against the actual ransomware actors. But just as things constantly move, as ransomware, there's all kinds of things addressing it on various sides. Social engineering and business email compromise is emerging in different ways. And that is a fake request for a wire transfer to come through or bad email links that an employee clicks and goes to the wrong site and does different things. So those are actually popping up all the time in completely different ways to capture and protect yourself and observe. So It is, for all the ways you observe, just a constant kind of moving target. And you get to a point with ransomware, which will never really go away. But then what's sort of the next category of attacks and how do you stay on top of this? The other bifurcation is the way that insurers are responding. There seems to be a strong core of pure cyber specialists who are keeping that integrity of the product. And the others who perhaps didn't have that investment have only got two levers left in their locker. If They've only got price and then exclusions and moving away from the risk. Would it be right to say that Corvus is more on the, the side of keeping that product integrity, giving the cover that the insured needs and just engaging with them? No, absolutely. And this is even beyond Corvus for the industry. For all the reasons that kind of digital assets and digital business operations are critical, I kind of view this as a critical watershed moment for the insurance industry, which is either we come up with the products and solutions to help our policyholders and customers with this risk that's obviously top of mind. But just saying we exclude everything or the product is not really that helpful when you're in your sort of worst moment of need, that's a little bit of abdication in my view of what the insurance industry should be doing. And exclusions that don't really help your policyholder make themselves safer or help them sleep at night because they know they've got the right partner to protect them, 
is kind of not where I think things need to head. And fortunately, there's through the things we talked about of different types of data, real understanding of what's actually reducing incidents and claim severity, which again is what the insurance industry's precious asset is. We really know incidents and claims more than anybody else, converting that into price signal and recommendations to policyholders to help make themselves safer. That's how the insurance industry is supposed to work. Not, hey, here's a terrible risk, so you're on your own. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, that I think would be a sad and also sort of foreclosing on what really is a lot of the future of what our customers are going to care about. So clearly with the Autarian acquisition, you're making a statement that you're going to stick around in this class, even though it's going through a difficult time at the moment, you're going to be able to work your way through it. Is that the rationale behind the acquisition of Tarium, which is a London-based MGA for those that are listening that don't know, but a quite well-known cyber MGA trading out of London, but also with some different bases in different parts of the world as well. Is that what it's all about? That's right. And thanks for mentioning that. And this is one of those acquisitions that there were at least three or four different great strategic rationale for it. And there's a great team at Tarion that had been trading cyber risk for a while, including in areas that Corvus hadn't traditionally. So at the very large end of Fortune 500 policies, and then also directly and through binder business across the globe in a lot of geographies where Corvus wasn't. So it fit a couple of strategies. One is how do we have product solutions that go all the way from the smallest customers, smallest policies to the Fortune 500 that are all kind of thinking about cyber risk in different ways and coming up with different solutions, insurance-wise and security solution-wise. And second, for a lot of threat actors, they don't really care what country you're based in. They can send automated attacks everywhere. So the ability to have a solution across the globe and work with customers across the globe was a big one. And that's, I think, been part of the traditional benefit of Lloyd's is the ability to instantly access global markets in a very efficient way. And so all of that made sense in kind of completing the Corvus product set and product offering in some ways. And I think second, from a data science perspective, more attacks, more incidents, more customers we just love from an analytics perspective. <laughs> we get more history of data of events and also of different types of policyholders and that enriches everything we do. And then the last one, which I'm coming back because you mentioned Heaven Strong, sort of the RMS side, but Lloyd's has historically been the place where the most imaginative, creative, smart capital has come in. And having a presence in Lloyd's has always been sort of a critical priority for me because I do see at some point even cyber risk evolving to a point where there's an attritional level, there's the equivalent of named storms, there's a cat level, and becoming the place where different risk takers can come in and think about which slice they understand or they want to take. That's not quite there yet, but I can see that evolving over time. And having Lloyd as a thought partner and creative, innovative thinking group is really valuable to our company. So you've shown your hand as a potential acquirer. Do you think there might be more M&A to come from your perspective? I think so. And Corbis, we were fortunate to be of a scale and cash position and with the investor backing we have to be more acquisitive. And I think this is the kind of time and with market turbulence where you'll have great assets available, whether it's a team, a geographic presence, a distribution partner, somebody that's built interesting technology or data that we could fit into our suite of things. and obviously the aqua hire talent capture as well. So we're very focused on M&A. We've done a few at this point, and I think we've got a good playbook and track record of making those work. Something else that's happening in the MGA space, MGU space, has been a lot of MGAs and MGUs sourcing some of their own capital, not necessarily all of it on their own balance sheet, but just another channel by which third-party investors can come and back them. 
We've seen quite a lot of that in the last 18 months, we say. It's becoming a full stack carrier, having your own balance sheet and some of your own licensing. Would that appeal to Corvus eventually? You know, it's interesting. I think of, or at least when I was coming up in the insurance world a decade ago, (laughs) it really was sort of this bifurcated, there's the broker, which is distribution and non-risk taking. And then there was the carrier side, which was no distribution, but all of the capital and sourcing that. And I think that binary model is changing a bit as you have folks who are accessing customers, but are also more thoughtful about risk or like in our case, sometimes we want to take more risk because we see real opportunities or we see opportunities that even outstrip what's available in some of the traditional risk capacity roles. So we're, I think, navigating a middle course. And I think there's a way to bring different capacity and capital in to put our money where our mouth is and take risks, either where we see a great opportunity that others don't or we want to fill that opportunity, or as a way to take risk to give comfort to others to sort of follow behind us. But having been at a full stack carrier, there's a lot of extra cost and overhead that comes with that, including potentially adding other product lines where there isn't as much immediate opportunity. Now, you do that for diversification benefit as a full stack carrier, but it takes us away from the specialization of really focusing on the lines where there's disruption and where technology can make a difference. And there's others who are kind of innovating and inventing this as a go of sort of some path in between which is like an MGA or MGU, that really we add and focus on product lines where we think mostly there's customer demand or disruption, and then going out and either from our existing partners or finding new partners who can provide risk capital to that. And I almost think of us as a manufacturer and risk capacity are our raw good suppliers. And just like a good manufacturer, we want great resiliency and breadth of capital partners, want to administer them with the lowest cost and kind of constantly be looking for the lowest cost of capital and staying really alongside capital partners. So as things start getting more fragmented or there's more specialist appetite for different types of risks, that we can become more of the clearinghouse for that or the way that comes together. So that's another fun part because I don't think that's fully been invented yet, but one that we're devising model along with others. So you're not ruling anything out. And I suppose you'll know it when you see it and you know you'll do it if you need to. (laughs) That's right. Exactly right. Exactly right. Well, when it most makes sense. A lot of insurtech businesses, they have a sort of mindset. Obviously, it's been a really amazing four or five years with this huge amount of flowering of interest and investment and this convergence of insurance and technology. Some of those insurtechs have a bit of a mentality. It's perhaps slightly negative from an incumbent's point of view. They'd come out and say that insurance is broken and it needs to be fixed or it needs to be disrupted. Is that a way that you look at the industry or are you more collaborative than that? No, I think there's a lot of ways to work with existing partners, whether it's on the distribution side or carriers who are smart risk takers and have a lot of data. And I do think there is an element of the industry in some ways is not really broken in that a lot of customers are pretty happy with the current solution. And in some ways, that really retards innovation because if your customers are generally satisfied, it's pretty hard to get relevance and something like that to happen. And I think back to different times in commercial insurance where it usually renews it somewhere between 80 to 90% a year. <laughs> and the 10 to 20% of customers that move, you may not want. <laughs> they may be sort of disrupted for different reasons. You could almost imagine if a group of traditional incumbent CEOs from insurance carriers got together and they could sort of snicker and say, wow, billions of billions of capital put into InsurTech and all we've really conceded are pet insurance and renter's insurance. <laughs> Everything else is pretty much the same. And that would be cynical, but it wouldn't be too far off. 
And so I think where the challenges for insurtechs is to think about where there is disruption or think about where there's dissatisfaction or new risks or new opportunities to step in, but understand that the current insurance players are actually pretty deeply entrenched with their customers. It's always easier to buy insurance from a company that's 100 years old than a year old from a customer perspective. And there's a safety and security component of it. And a lot of it is relatively similar. But one that has an old-fashioned agent on your main street. Exactly right. Who really knows their product. <laughs> well, that's right. I think the number of talented entrepreneurs have come into the industry and said, oh, insurance agent, that's just like travel agent. How could that possibly exist? They've been proven wrong <laughs> again and again and again. And again, if there's a product you think about once a year, you really do value the trust that a broker or agent can provide and their ability to execute and find options for you. Right. Well, I'm going to put you more in the collaborative insurance isn't quite broken, but it can definitely be improved. Yes, that's right. As say, cyber insurance, your advice to insurtechs would be to go for those high growth, high problem, you know, run towards all the big problems rather than run towards something that's fairly not necessarily broken or consumer insurance, which people are fairly happy with. I think maybe this is driven by the need to put together kind of investor presentations, but I find a lot of companies go after what they see as a large TAM or total addressable market. You know, if you look at homeowners or small business, you get multiple hundred billions of premium. You know, the problem is most of that renews at 90%. And so the actual available premium is either accounts that have had an issue or ones that existing carriers don't want. And we've been thinking about a term at Corvus called PIM, premium in motion. And so when we prioritize products or areas to go, it's where is there good quality premium that's actually available, either because customers are buying it for the first time or expanding limits for the first time or expanding limits in a new way, or where traditional carriers are pulling back and it's not available. And if you look at that new lens of premium in motion, you know, cyber comes right to the top of the list, but there's other categories as well where traditional solutions haven't really adapted to current circumstances. I think of areas of commercial trucking where there's been losses and new risk behaviors, but also new signals and data to underwrite. I think there are new categories like that that are naturally more susceptible to new entrants and new approaches. So that's much more your DNA. This is the real entrepreneurial underwriting DNA, it sounds like. That's right. Sounds good to someone like me who spends a lot of time covering that end of the market and sitting in London. Always sounds good. Right. Huge amount of other things have been going on in underwriting over the last four or five years. In parallel with the InsurTech movement, we've had this huge amount of investment in algorithmic, automated underwriting. Obviously, you're right at the forefront of all of this kind of stuff. And I'm sure you automate whatever you can. You want to be as efficient as possible. How far do you think this is going to get up the food chain? Do you think there's some classes that are just too small, where the numbers are too small, there are not enough contracts, and it's too complex? Or do you think everything could be automated in one form or another? Is it like driving a Tesla where at the moment, the Tesla will tell you, yeah, hey, you're straying out of your lane, but you don't take your hand off the steering wheel yet and let it drive yet. Are you a bit like that? We know the direction of travel. We know that one day we will get into the Tesla and there won't even be a steering wheel. Right. No, that's an interesting analogy. And if I think about it even within our own business at Corbis in cyber underwriting. And we do some very low limit, low premium policies for small businesses. They need to be instantly executable. You need to be able to pay with your credit card and you want a decision in 30 seconds and then you move on. So those have to be algorithmic. Now, luckily, there's lots of data points so that you can come up with a pretty good price and know that generally the portfolio will make sense. So that I put in sort of one category. Now, in the mid-market, 
if you've got a $20,000 cyber insurance premium, that is a very different kind of discussion. Now there's a negotiation with the policyholder or potentially and with the broker. You need to provide a few different options. Well, what's this sublimit? What deductible do I need? Oh, you know, hospitals tend to buy this or you know, manufacturing, this might be more important. There, the data is very helpful to inform decision-making and models are good to say, oh, what generally what do manufacturing companies have and what are their risks? But it's very much informing a human interaction. And again, I think some insure techs don't think about it that way, but this is where I think the traditional insurance DNA comes in, which is that is a product that is a consultative discussion with the broker and with the policyholder. And it's data informed and algorithm informed, but executed through a very kind of human interaction. And so you want to make that algorithmic and make sure that the data ingestion and modeling and analytics is automated so that an underwriter doesn't spend any time with manual tasks or putting data together, but where there is a human element to it. And then obviously at the Fortune 500 is much more of that, where you might have probable maximum losses thinking about different things, but it's very much a, how do I read a equivalent of a risk engineering report? How do I think about the security posture of this company and what do they need and how do I co-insure? So it's kind of, as you said, the more policies, the more fungible, interchangeable units there are of claims and policies, the more homogeneous it looks it's more susceptible to algorithm and straight through processing and that sort of thing. But again, coming back to my AG days, the part I think is the most fun and interesting is when you bring the benefit of models and analytics, but combine that with the judgment of what's important for this client, what's actually the risk that they're worried about, what's actually suitable for a client that has this kind of risk preference and this risk tolerance and what's important for them and coming up with that solution in a kind of data-informed way because I think where a lot of the kind of interesting value is. So it's more about enhancement and improving productivity, improving the hit rate of those top underwriters, but not replacing them. That's right. A seasoned underwriter has all of their experience for 30 years of underwriting to draw from and all the claims they've seen, the policies they've seen work out well or not. And sometimes I think about models or just, it's kind of like popping up above your cube and asking 3,000 times, hey, what have people seen here? What's all the history and pulling that together? But it's still very much kind of underwriter judgment and sales and consultative process to, to get the right answer for policyholders. Also, as a business, you're playing your own part in that, in helping to visualize and decant that data to help it more useful for making decisions. It's almost that you have products and scoring products and things as part of your suite, don't you? And are those available to third parties? Is that correct? They have been historically, it's something we think about, but I'm glad you bring that up because you can give a score and say, we have something called the Corvus score and we, we do a scan and we'll provide information that's kind of a consolidated score about susceptibility to attack and both the frequency and severity. And then subcomponents of ransomware, email compromise, you know, those kinds of things that give more data. But the ways that they often get used, now algorithmically at the low end, if it doesn't hit a certain score and we know what the drivers are, we may just pass or, or not underwrite. But where it becomes really interesting is in that mid-level and that discussion again with the broker and the policyholder, which is, hey, I scored an X, but it's driven by this. And then we get into a discussion of, actually, if you do this with these open ports and we know that you're reliant on this software or you do this thing, you can actually improve that score and then either become underwritable or at a better price, or these are the things you can do as a policyholder to improve things. And so a score and algorithm driven item, but then leads to a very sort of human and understandable set of recommendations and outputs. And again, that's what I really think is what insurance is supposed to be all about, which is 
using that data and price signal to improve security and safety for policyholders and win together. And that's exactly, as you said, where, where industry ought to be focusing. So it's important to be transparent, to be able to explain, say, hey, you're not very good at the moment, but if you do this, you're going to be great. And then you can get the coverage you need at the price that you can afford. <laughs> that's right. Exactly right. Exactly right. But in terms of that thing about products for third parties, that's not how we should think of Corvus. We should think about you as a business that's going to be much more proprietary in the way that it uses its own technology from now on. Is that right? <laughs> from now on, uh, with the big asterisk of, of everything changes and, and who knows, that could be the ultimate solution, which is we provide scores to people and consultative services and policyholder engagement in addition to risk taking. Or we keep it as a proprietary approach to make our own decisions. I think there's a lot of different avenues things can go. What I love is once you've got a great, valuable, proprietary data asset with real history about incidents and claims and how those evolve, that creates a real defensible moat and I think can be monetized in a lot of ways. So right now we're more focused on what are the things that enrich and improve that asset and then figure out downstream what are the right ways to make use of that. Well, there's no reason why you can be doing both. There's no conflict and that one helps improve the risk management of the client itself. So it can only be good. It's only virtuous, isn't it? Exactly right. Well, Maddie, I'd love to ask you, pick your brains. You're part of a very fast-moving organization and very forward-looking organization. So what do you think you're seeing coming down the track? What do you think are the big opportunities over the next five years, say, when you're big planning meetings and the big investment decisions you're going to have to make for the next five years? What are you really doubling down on? And also, what things can you see over the horizon that we haven't thought of yet? That's, I should ask you that. No, I think there's a lot and it's evolving. And so even the answer I give now, maybe the ways are sound silly a year from now. So building that data asset, I think is a crucial one. I think, again, the insurance industry really does have, historically, a lot of this stuff hadn't been kept in cyber, but pretty granular data about incidents, what leads to claims and how that's correlated with what policyholders looked like at different times. And so cultivating and building and expanding that asset to improve our own underwriting and pricing, to improve our policyholder engagement, setting aside even how we might monetize that. I think that's kind of a crucial component of this. On the product side, I think the product is evolving all the time with new kinds of endorsements, new kinds of sublimits, new kinds of features, services attached to it. So even within cyber, I think there's a lot of innovation around that. We're definitely keeping our ear to the ground on the sort of cyber adjacent, which are what are the first concentric circle out from cyber that might include, does the industry finally address silent cyber, the kind of cyber that's embedded in property policies and all those things in a more affirmative way? I think there's some science that that's going to have to happen one way or the other. And then thinking about even the same product in new geographies, and there's an area we're focused on too, which is thinking about working with just broader non-insurance cybersecurity software and services companies. And how can we partner with them? We, again, we have a pretty unique data resource that they don't have, which is the insurance industry knows what actually results in claims. And we've got the dependent variable for all of their kind of independent variable. And figuring out how to partner with that broader cybersecurity, info security world is another component and area of real interest. I think I mentioned geographic expansion. You know, this is even earlier stage in, in a lot of other countries, even though the risks in some ways are the same. And that's a key part of it. And then more broadly, which products are starting to look more like this, where new forms of data can drive better decisions and where ongoing policyholder engagement is crucial. There's lots of manufacturing. There's lots of technology and systems-driven companies. You mentioned trucking. There's ones like that that can be more sensor-driven companies that could be more and more relevant and building sort of the right infrastructure for that. 
and then figuring out how to partner with even the traditional insurance ecosystem. Some people may say this is different enough from the other parts of insurance. You know, maybe we ought to work with specialists in a different way and figure out you know, how that story may work as well. But it's so fast moving. I honestly spend relatively little time thinking about five years from now because I'm just trying to understand even the last six months and the next 12 months. But I think those are probably some of the broad thrusts of when we get together for those longer term conversations. So it sounds like you're going to be there looking for the new problems and running towards them as soon as they appear. That's right. And I do think there's a big part around human capital and talent, which is, you know, how do we get folks who may not have traditionally been in the insurance industry to find it interesting and work on these problems with us? which I think in some of the industry needs a rebranding or to be thought of as not quite as boring. And when anybody scratches even a little bit beyond the surface, they say, wow, data science, it's actually being used for good and helping the world do different things and technology that can really make an impact in people's lives. So that I think is part of it as well. And I do think there's a lot of the existing and senior talent in the insurance industry that's built around kind of knowledge and knowing who you know, what you know about products, what you know about historical things. And where I think this line is very much about learning and adapting to new things. And so bringing that kind of right talent base together is another component. And I'm very focused on making sure that Corvus is the preferred employer for the best, most imaginative insurance talent and the most thoughtful data science, technology, product talent, and bringing that together for the long term. Well, that's excellent, Madhu. And I wish you every success with that. And certainly the hold insurtech boom, it's certainly made insurance a lot cooler over the last five years. And it's certainly that's right. perhaps on the radar of some of those top graduates when it perhaps wouldn't have been before. That's right. So I commend you on being at the front of that wave. And I wish you every success. And I hope you'll come back and speak to the Voice of Insurance very soon. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed this. And thank you for all the work you're doing as well. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, Don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan, in association with Advantage Go, enabling underwriters to increase the speed and accuracy of decision making. Original music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.